If you have a Bible, now's the time to grab it. You're welcome to get one out of the boxes in the center aisle. Some of the text will be on the screen. Let's go ahead and jump into it. Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, or Sinai, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sign, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. for The place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Let's stop there. There's so, so much more to the story, but I think that's plenty uh, to bite off for one morning. Let me pray for us. Father, help us to to connect with your heart. Lord, we know that this isn't simply some arbitrary uh, story for us to kind of muse upon, but Lord, this this is a story that reveals something that's at the very heart of who you are, your heart, and what you're like. So I pray that this morning you would open up our hearts and reveal yourself to us. Be our teacher in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's back up. Last week we talked about Jacob and this this surreal moment that he had wrestling with God. Um, 
We're not going to recap that entire story. But what happens next is that he crosses over, and Jacob and his children, his 11 children, after he crosses back over uh, this little stream, and he begins to build his family. Several years go by, and due to some rather unfortunate and bizarre circumstances, one of Jacob's sons, his youngest son at that time, a guy named Joseph, ends up getting taken, or rather sold into slavery and shipped off to Egypt. Now, it turns out it was a good thing that it had happened because a famine broke out in all the land, and it just so happens that Joseph was able to Listen to God in such a way that the government, Pharaoh in Egypt, was able to prepare for this great famine. Long story short, his whole family ends up going to Egypt and they survive. Scriptures tell us that there were 70 of them. About almost 400 years go by. We're not told a lot about those 400 years. Um, But we do know that the family of Jacob, he's now called Israel, grows. I mean, they really grow. They they bear fruit and they multiply. They, They begin to turn into a nation, as nations do. They become so big that the Egyptians, Pharaoh, the the leader of the Egyptian empire, begins to feel threatened. And he says to his leaders, like, we've got to do something about the Hebrew people. They're going to overwhelm us. They're, they're turning into a, a large and mighty nation. So Pharaoh commands that every male Hebrew child be aborted. He puts out this edict, and he says to all the midwives, every time a male Hebrew child comes out, I want you to smash them throw them in the river, abort them. This is Pharaoh's uh, idea for limiting the, the population growth of Israel. So this happens. This happens more than once in scriptures. There's a little boy that ends up escaping this uh, genesis, this emphasize. His mother, he's, he's the son of two Levites, a man and a woman, somehow are able to, to get the little boy before he's aborted and they put him in a little basket and they stick him in the Nile River and they send him down. It says that Pharaoh's daughter is bathing in the river and with some of her servants and they notice this little baby floating down the river in this basket. And she sends her servants, go grab this baby, draw him out of the water. And they get this little baby that she ends up adopting and they raise in Pharaoh's household. They end up naming the little boy Moses, which literally means drawn out. Moses grows up as an adopted son in the house of Pharaoh. He's educated as a, as a royal adopted son, as it were. He's trained, he's, he's a leader. And around the age of 40 years old, we're told that Moses notices that his kinspeople, the Hebrews, who are now have all been enslaved to the Egyptians, are being severely oppressed. 
And he decides that he needs to do something about it. So it says one day, he's witnessing one of the Egyptian slave masters beating one of the Hebrew slaves ruthlessly. Moses steps in and he ends up assaulting the Egyptian slave master and kills him. Initially, Moses thinks, this is it. I'm going to lead a revolution. I'm going to be the one to see God's people liberated from slavery in Egypt and the promises that Apparently, he'd become aware of the promises made about God's people. Promise made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel. Apparently, Moses thinks, I'm going to be the one. I'll be the one to liberate God's people. Turns out, God's people weren't feeling it. It says, one day he notices a couple of Hebrew slaves fighting. And he tries to intervene. And one of the slaves turns to Moses and says, who are you? Are you going to kill one of us like you killed the Egyptian slave the other day or the slave master? And Moses is like, whoa. Word gets back to Pharaoh, and apparently they put a warrant out for his arrest. An adopted son in the house of Pharaoh is now a wanted man, so it says he flees. At age 40, Moses takes off out into the desert on the run for his life. Apparently, this whole idea that he was going to lead some sort of revolution and see God's people liberated from slavery was just like a delusion of grandeur. Did not work out, and so now Moses is living out in the Midian Desert, someplace out in the middle of Sinai around Egypt. Says that he uh, ends up meeting one of the daughters of a Midian priest, a guy named Jethro, which we just read about. And he ends up getting a job. He marries the girl, and he gets a job working for his wife's father-in-law. What a life. 40 years go by. Moses has been wandering around in this desert as a shepherd. 40 years. What a life. And keep, keep in mind, and this is told to us elsewhere in scripture, that shepherds in the eyes of the Egyptians were considered like the untouchables of their class system. They were like filthy, less than human. So Moses went from royalty, living as an adopted son in the palace of Pharaoh, to now wandering around out in the desert for 40 years, working for his father-in-law as a shepherd. And it says, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, and one day Moses went to work. That's, that's really how the story begins. And one day... After shepherding out in the the middle of this desert for 40 years, Moses goes to work. He's walking around in this desert. I've actually been in this desert about, I don't know, a decade ago or so. I spent a week hiking around the Sinai Desert, me and about 20 of my friends, sleeping in the dirt, looking at the stars. You've not seen nebulae until you've spent the night under the stars in the Sinai Desert. There's not a lot out there. There's dirt, uh, rocks, the occasional wild donkey, and shrubs, like bushes. Moses notices a bush on fire. But notice in the text, we're, we're told specifically that the thing that really caught Moses' attention wasn't the fact that a bush was on fire. Um, 
I've heard a variety of different theories about how a bush could have actually caught on fire out in the middle of the Sinai Desert. Who knows? But the thing that apparently caught his attention was the fact that there was a bush on fire that wasn't burning down. It just wasn't being consumed. So that was the thing that really got his attention. And he went over to see this bush that was on fire but not being consumed, only to have this encounter of this holy moment with God. And everything changes at that point. You, you could say that this story, this encounter that Moses has with God in this bush on fire is in a lot of ways the beginning of God's story of redemption. I mean, it started way back in the beginning, but this is, this is the turning point. This is like when the story is really about to get good. Moses meets God. And keep in mind, we're, we're, we're not told anything for like almost 400 years, nothing. Just God's people in slavery. No prophets, no promises, no miracles, no signs of God even caring, much less being aware until this moment. The 80-year-old Moses who's been wandering around this desert working for his father-in-law as a shepherd for 40 years now has what I would call a holy moment, a holy moment. Have you ever, have you ever thought to yourself, I wonder what, what might my life be like if I were to have some kind of encounter like this with God? I mean, maybe not like out in the middle of the desert with a bush on fire and all of that, but like a, like a holy moment with God where I meet him, I hear him, I experience his presence, and like my whole life course is affected. Have you ever, have you ever thought, like, what might that be like? Have you ever secretly hoped to yourself that like actually God has given you life for a reason? And how cool would it be if you discovered what that reason was? And if by the time you got to your 80th birthday, you could look back on your life and say, yes, that was the moment everything changed and I have fulfilled my purpose in life. Have you ever, have you ever, maybe not in those words, but have you ever thought like how amazing would that be to, to meet and interact with God like that, in that way? Huh? Delusions of grandeur. Or maybe just this is, this is God. Maybe. Maybe this is Moses and this is absolutely something extraordinary and unique. And let's not actually have delusions of grandeur. You're not Moses and nor am I. But does God meet with people in, in amazing, life-changing ways and say, you, what are you doing? What are you doing with your life? I've got something for you to do. What might that look like? Are you guys with me? Have you ever had a holy moment? Amen. Yeah? 
I had one. I've had a couple. I remember, in, in fact, uh, one of the biggest ones was when we were hiking around the Sinai Desert. We started out, we flew into Tel Aviv, and we, we were going to spend about a month at a little kibbutz in Israel, one of these little tours you know, that, that we do as Christians. And, uh, and we got there, we landed, we got on a little bus, there was about 20 of us, and we headed straight for Yadish Manah, this little kibbutz in Israel there. And our guide again, I'm R.E.A. Bar-David, awesome, awesome guy, loves the Lord, second generation Christian in Israel. And he's like, all right, guys, drop your stuff off, we're going for a hike. And before you can even think about what's happening, we are hoofing it through the desert in Israel. It's, it's getting quite late, the sun is setting, and he gets us up on this cliff overlooking the desert. This isn't the Sinai, this is out in Israel someplace. Overlooking the desert, sun is setting dead quiet it's it's surreal you know you're in this different world and i remember the 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 group of us were all standing there no one's saying a word it's just it's a holy moment and then off in the distance very very quietly you can hear some music You guys know the one? Leonard Skinner? Yes, Sweet Home Alabama. We could all sing it for sure. It was the weirdest thing ever. Some some Bedouins or something out there in the desert with their their boombox rocking Skinner. More recently, um, I think I had another holy moment. Uh, this was just earlier this week. I was down at the Whole Food here having uh, coffee with a couple, couple guys. And um, we were talking about the Lord, talking about Jesus. I, I, I think I was kind of preaching the gospel. Um, and this other guy, never met him in my life. We're, we're sitting at the picnic tables, the benches out in front of the Whole Food. If you've been down there outside, gorgeous morning. This other guy walks up from out of nowhere. He sits down two tables down from us. And I, I just kind of notice him out of the corner of my eye, I'm not paying a whole lot of attention, until he busts out this giant shofar. You guys know what a shofar is? Yeah. He gets the shofar out, I think we have a picture of it, puts it to his mouth, right there in front of the whole food. Can we get that, that image up in case, yeah, there it is. right there in front of the whole food, just blasts the shofar. And I look up, and I'm like, call to prayer, my man. Turns out, he loves Jesus. Like, I, I was trying to, like, get back in my little mindset. I'm trying to talk to this guy about Jesus. This guy ends up coming, coming over to our table, sits down, and he just starts to, like, preach. I mean, he's just like, let me, and I, first thing I asked him, I go, hey, how's it going? My name's Simon. He's like, yeah, my, my name's Myron. Nice to meet you, brother. And I said, are you a believer? He says, am I a believer? Let me tell you about what I believe. And he just goes for it. He just goes for it. Oh, I was feeling it. And it was one of those moments where I was like, no, this is super weird. Like, I'm not going to lie. It's just about as weird as it gets. But it was a holy moment, to be sure. At one point, he started to like share his personal, Myron started to share his personal testimony. He said, let me tell you about the day 
Jesus rescued me. And they got really choked up and he put his head down. He looked back up. His, he was just, tears were streaming. And he shared about how Jesus had rescued him and how if Jesus could save anyone, he is evidence of God's grace. Guys, holy moments, these these moments that we occasionally have where it's as if God has just decided for whatever reason to come bombarding into that moment in our lives, to bless us, to remind us, to simply encourage us, to somehow perhaps call us rescue us from ourselves and get us back on to track. These, we we want to live for these moments. I mean, we, wanna, we want these moments, do we not? Like, I mean, this is the best. I don't own a shofar, but if I can ensure every time I blew one, Myron would just magically appear, <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would do that every day. Seriously, how do we experience these sorts of moments? Not that you can take the show far picture away. <laughs> what do we do to experience these moments that we're reading about? Because I realize the story of the burning bush, oh, it, it is multifaceted. Theologically, there's so much meaning packed in this story. And you'll notice I stopped at verse 12. If we had gone on any further, it would have just exploded with theological meaning and significance. And there's, we, could, we could do a whole series. We could spend the rest of the summer talking about the burning bush and how God introduces himself to this man Moses and what he does through a single life. But what I want us to focus on for the next few minutes is simply this idea of holy moments. If you're a follower of Jesus, how do you experience this sort of interaction, this sort of relationship with God where it's not some sort of weird thing that only happens to 80-year-old men wandering around in deserts, but it's, it's, it's part of the Christian's life. If you're a follower of Jesus, I simply expect to meet with God in these ways on some sort of regular basis. What does a holy moment look like? Well, in this case, this holy moment began with, and Moses went to work one day. I want to make this point, simply starting out, that we often make the mistake of looking for holy moments in the weird and extraordinary, only this story starts with Moses going to work one day, 40 years in the desert, and he sees the divine and the ordinary. God gets his attention through just a bush, a bush on fire, to be fair, a burning bush in the desert. Something about it catches his attention. The divine in the daily. We don't need to look or somehow try to manufacture weird or overly emotional moments to experience the presence of God in a place or situation. The Bible says that we're to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. Sometimes these types of moments begin by simply going to work one day, being faithful with that little blessing that God has given you, a job, a family member, 
It could even be like coming to church on a Sunday. I've been doing this for since I became a Christian, uh, almost 20 years ago, going to church every Sunday. I just do it, it's what I do. And occasionally, these mornings turn into holy moments. Holy moments aren't necessarily, in fact, I would argue, are rarely weird, but they are absolutely weighty. This is the important thing, whether it's weird or not, whether my man's got a chauffeur, 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 or in just a normal moment like this, holy moments with God are absolutely weighty. In verse five, the first thing God says to Moses is, take off your sandals, but the place which you are standing is holy ground. God is holy. The God of the Bible the God who has revealed himself ultimately in the person of Jesus is a holy God. Let me read to you two examples of individuals who had holy moments and were overwhelmed with the utter holiness of God. Isaiah chapter six, starting in verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord sitting, this is a vision, sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. These are like angelic creatures. Each had six wings. With two, they covered their face, and with two, they covered their feet, and with the other two, they flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Smoke always comes before fire. And he said, woe is me. Isaiah, as he he saw this vision, he said, woe is me, for I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King of the Lord of hosts. He's speechless. He's overwhelmed with his own sense of unworthiness. The only thing he can say for himself is, whoa, I am an unclean person. As he finds himself in the presence of holy, holy, holy God. Daniel chapter 10. Daniel has a vision and he says, I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold around his waist. His body was like beryl, it's like a gemstone. His face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. And the sound of his words were like the sound of a multitude and I, Daniel, I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone. I saw this great vision and had no strength left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. 
In other words, when God spoke, Daniel blacked out and fell on his face before this vision of God. God is holy, awesome, terrifying. Expect to be overcome by the awesome weight of God's glory if you ever find yourself in a holy moment encountering the very presence of God. It's a weighty moment. What do you do with that? I know some of you might be thinking like, whoa, can we get to the part about Jesus? No, let's, 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 let's just wait for a moment. Moses hid his face for he was afraid when he, was, when he realized he was standing on holy ground. I think the most rational response to a holy moment is terror and a desire to hide. This is what we see in uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 10. I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, I was exposed, I was weak and I hid myself. In the gospel of Luke chapter 5, verse 8, when Peter met Jesus, Peter knelt down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. There's something about coming into the presence of God where all of a sudden in the moment you become overwhelmingly aware of your own sin. It's like enough to to just bring you to your knees. You want to hide your face because God is so holy. It's like one of those, um, I don't know if any of you have this, my grandma had one of these uh, like magnifying glass mirrors on her little makeup table with like the bright light around it. You guys know what I'm talking about? And you turn it on and you look at it and it's like, bam. I'm like, wow, I have pores on my nose like the size of craters. (laughs) Turn the light off. Like Like this is, I don't need to see this. I think maybe it's like that, but to the, to the, the infinity degree, when we come to the presence of God, all of a sudden we're overwhelmed with the weight of his holiness. And we just want to hide our face. But God doesn't want us to hide. He wants us to look to him for help. Hebrews chapter four, verses 14 and 16 Since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Isaiah 41 verse 10, fear not for I'm with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 
in both Isaiah's encounter and Daniel's, if we read a bit further, after they both fall on their face, overwhelmed with the holiness, the weight of God's glory, you know what happens? God himself comes near. And for both of those men, it says that he touched their mouth or he touched their lips. And he said, now I have made you clean. Stand. You're welcome in my presence. There's something rational about being aware and honest and perhaps even overwhelmed with the weight of God's glory and the reality of his holiness and how before him we realize I am so utterly undone. I just want to hide. And yet God comes near and he says, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah. Don't look at me, you'll die. And then he reaches out and he comes close and he touches us in Jesus and he cleans us and he says, now stand up, come home. Today you become my adopted child. This is what Jesus did for us on the cross. Guys, I have to read this quote to you from Tozer. If you ever wanna read anything about the holiness of God, you gotta go to Tozer. He wrote in The Knowledge of the Holy, we must hide our unholiness in the wounds of Christ. We must take refuge from God in God. Above all, we must believe that God sees us perfect in his son while he disciplines and chastens and purges us that we may be partakers of his holiness. We must hide ourselves in the wounds of Christ. For it's there that we find help in the presence of God. What happens next? Okay, so we're describing a holy moment. It starts with perhaps the ordinary, with merely being faithful, going to work one day. We're quickly made aware of the awesome weight of God himself, his holiness. We want to run, we want to hide. And we turn to Jesus for help. Then what? I think sometimes we, we might recognize the moment, the holy moment, as it were, and forget that there's actually a purpose for meeting God in that way in that moment. Sometimes we'll come to even a, maybe a gathering, a church service, and the, the music will be especially good. And you know, you'll go home afterwards, and maybe you go out to lunch. You'll maybe talk to your friend and be like, oh man, that, the worship was lit. It was so good. Oh my gosh. Or maybe you go to another church, and you hear the preacher preach a message, and you're like, dude, that was awesome. Like, I felt the presence of God for real. I felt so convicted. You feel, I felt that, yeah. Wow, it was so good. Or he was so funny today. It was like the presence of God was just like giving him comedic timing. It was so powerful. There it was right there. (laughs) Silly. But then we leave, and it's like, wow, holy moment, done. I guess I'll just come back next week and get another holy moment because those are just really fun. And I suppose they are. Like, I love holy moments. But I think what's important for us to see in this story in particular 
is that this moment wasn't just a moment for a moment's sake. This was a catalyst for something more like a movement. What does he say? What does he say? Take off your sandals, but this is holy ground. Can we go to the next slide, please? He hides his face. He says, I've seen the affliction of my people. You know, if we back up at the very end of chapter two, we're told that God's people were crying out for help. You know, sometimes our prayer for help can be the beginning of a holy moment for another. And he says, I heard their cry. I know their suffering and I'm gonna set them free and I'm gonna use you. And the next slide, please. He says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh. Remember that day, once upon a time, 40 years ago, when you you thought that I was gonna do something, you thought that perhaps you were gonna be a part of a revolution that would change the face of the world? Yeah, I'm gonna do that now. I'm gonna use you. And he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Been there, done that, tried, failed. Now, I'm weak, I'm old. Like my, I'm, my time has come and gone. He says, no, that's perfect. Yeah, I'm gonna use you because my grace is made perfect in weakness. He says, I'm going to use you to bring my children out of Egypt. And he says, here's the sign. I will be with you. And after you've brought them out, you're gonna worship them. You're gonna worship me. You're going to serve me right here in this place on this mountain. The moment was meant to be the catalyst for a missional movement. And this is where I want to close. This is the point I would like us to take away today. That every time we find ourselves encountering God in a holy moment, we must remember that us Westerners, can I say that? It's become so cliche. Us Westerners, kids are above you if you can't see them, have gotten really good, i.e. bad, at just living for the moment. And I want us to begin to look for holy moments, realizing that it's in those moments that God catalyzes missional movements. And it's in those moments that we're meant to take away something and share it with others. Because God is constantly looking for his lost children to rescue them and to bring them home. And he has this thing about using weak, broken people like us.